Hi, writers. Welcome to another episode in our series of podcasts on writing fiction. We're going to talk in this episode about several really important topics. The first being a continuation of our uh, discussion about interior monologue. But first, another important topic. I'm often asked, and I'm sure you are too, are dogs good for writers? You know my position about cats. My cat Jack is curled up on my desk right now doing what he does best, which is utterly nothing. Well, what about dogs? In 1935, John Steinbeck was so poor he couldn't afford a dog. The literary critic Louis Gannett uncovered this fact in Steinbeck's letters with his agent during the time he was writing Tortilla Flats. Steinbeck said, quote, I need a dog pretty badly. End quote. Isn't that wonderful? He said, he continued, quote, apparently we are headed for the rocks. The light company is going to turn off the power in a few days. End quote. By the time Steinbeck had finished writing Of Mice and Men, he had earned enough money to buy a dog, a setter named Toby, who one night alone with the manuscript of Mice and Men, made confetti of it. <laughs> he chewed it up. Steinbeck wrote, quote, two months' work to do over. There was no other draft. I was pretty mad. But the poor little fellow may have been acting critically. I didn't want to ruin a good dog for a manuscript I'm not sure is good at all, end quote, John Steinbeck said. Uh, Mice, as Steinbeck called his novel, was critically acclaimed and became a Book of the Month Club selection and a serious movie. But the suddenly famous Steinbeck still had his doubts, quote, I'm not sure. Toby didn't know what he was doing when he ate the first draft. I have promoted Toby Dog to be lieutenant colonel in charge of literature, end quote. That's John Steinbeck. Once in a while, I come across a wonderful quotation about writing. Willa Cather was an American author who wrote about frontier life on the Great Plains, including O Pioneers, her novel in 1913, The Song of the Lark uh, in 1915, and one of my favorite novels, My Antonia, which she published in 1918. She was uh, awarded the Pulitzer Prize for her novel, One of Ours, in, uh, written in 1922, a novel set during uh, the First World War. She said, and isn't this a wonderful thought? This is Willa Cather, quote, Every fine story must leave in the mind of the sensitive reader an intangible residue of pleasure. End quote. That's Willa Cather. Here are a couple lines from uh, my Antonia. Listen to how wonderful this is. The earth was warm under me and warm as I crumbled it through my fingers. I kept as still as I could. Nothing happened. I did not expect anything to happen. I was something that lay under the sun and felt it like the pumpkins and I did not want to be anything more. I was entirely happy. 
Perhaps we feel like that when we die and become a part of something entire, whether it is sun or, and air or goodness and knowledge. At any rate, that is happiness, to be dissolved into something complete and great. When it comes to one, it comes as naturally as sleep. That's Willa Cather, and uh, boy, can she write. In our last episode, we ended by talking about interior monologue. Interior monologue is simply a character thinking. Uh, it is the most likely the most boring part of a novel, uh, reading about a character's thought, uh, much less interesting than action or descriptions or dialogue. And maybe the worst kind of interior monologue is navel-gazing. Navel-gazing is where the character thinks about how she feels about things, and she sharpens and sharpens those thoughts. Here's an example of nasal gazing, navel gazing, uh, that I wrote. Uh, bear with me; it'll it'll take a minute. But I I want to offer an idea of uh, interior monologue that is dreadful. I'll be here next year. Scott kissed your cheek. Same time, same place. I'm already looking forward to it. He smiled at her, then walked under the big clock. Julie watched him disappear among the Christmas shoppers. They had been meeting at this Macy's Cafe once a year since they had graduated from college, six years now, to talk about friends and family and to give each other updates. Sometimes it was the best 90 minutes of her holiday season. Sitting across from him a moment ago, she had been tempted to ask if he'd go to dinner with her tonight, but she had quelled the urge. They were friends, and had been for ten years. Why ruin that? He had been geeky when she had first met him, with tortoiseshell glasses and hair that wouldn't seem to lie down, but he had changed over the years, growing into himself. And last year, and again this year, she had found herself being flirty with him, smiling and eyeing him as she had never done before. She should have just asked him to dinner, maybe. She was more attracted to Scott than she ever had been to Jonathan, whose company had transferred him to Hong Kong, and it had taken her only a week to determine she was glad he was gone. The old saying that absent makes the heart grow fonder was less true than another old saying, out of sight, out of mind. She missed being kept busy by Jonathan, movies, dinners, parties, more than she missed him. She had laughed more in 90 minutes with Scott than she had in a year with Jonathan. Julie stepped out of the way of a woman carrying six Macy's bags. Would Scott be interested in an actual date? Did she dare ask him for dinner? He had always treated her more like one of the guys than as a, than as a young lady, much less a desirable young lady. Maybe that's what attracted her to him. She was tired of guys hitting on her, especially the buffed fellows at the gym who always flexed their pecs when they talked to her. She liked a more circuitous approach, and she appreciated subtlety. She smiled at the thought that perhaps Scott was indeed trying to approach her, but was being so subtle she wasn't picking up on it. 
Maybe he just needed some encouragement. But would she want to be in a relationship with him? She wondered about, and here I put four uh, ellipses, an ellipses of four dots. This is interior monologue. Uh, she is sharpening and sharpening the pencil as she thinks and thinks and thinks about how she feels about things. This is uh, a very easy trap to get into because uh, I wrote this uh, awful uh, two paragraphs in, what, 10 minutes? And uh, it's easy. It's, uh, thinking requires no cause and effect, and you, it, the words just spill out semi-stream of consciousness. We writers should avoid interior monologue in general and this navel-gazing in particular. It's the least interesting part of a novel. How can we avoid this uh, interior monologue? Here's an example. Uh, here, uh, where, where the reader is hearing Carolyn think. Listen to this. Carolyn worried about her son's safety. Tommy was so impetuous. Sometimes he did dangerous things, and he was small for his age. The boy had been angry ever since his dad had left for the gold fields. Tommy didn't obey her, and sometimes she would catch him scowling and staring at her. She wished Tommy had friends nearby, but town was six miles away, and his closest friend, Jake, lived a mile away on the other side of the river. These are important thoughts, a mother concerned about her son. But they just aren't too interesting when presented inside the character's mind. Here's a way to show the same worries in action and dialogue. And I, I hope you'll find this is much more interesting than uh, Carolyn's thoughts. She leaned out the open window. Tommy, get away from that fire. That stump is going to burn all day and night, and, and don't you get too near it. Her son stared at her then stepped closer to the bonfire. Didn't you hear me? She crossed the parlor, lifting her apron so it wouldn't trip her, and ran into the yard. You get away from there. She grabbed him by his suspenders and yanked him back. Dad would let me tend this fire. He tried to swat her hand away. He taught me how to burn these stumps and clear this field. Your dad isn't here. He was wearing hand-me-down wool pants. She had taken the hem up six inches. His gingham, sh gingham shirt was patched at the elbows. His voice was piping. Dad would have taken me, uh, should have taken me with him. I want to dig for gold with him. I don't want to go to school anymore. Your dad will send us train money soon, and we'll go out to California. Then you can dig all the gold you want. She led him away from the burning stump. I'll walk you over to Jake's. You and he can ride his pony. Here, with action and dialogue, we learn about Carolyn's worries without entering her mind for dull interior monologue, and it's much more interesting for the reader because it's part of a scene with action. The fire, her running out into the yard, Tommy trying to swat her hand, and tense dialogue. We've shown the reader her worries in action and dialogue. Sometimes, though, uh, interior monologue is unavoidable. What if you can't find a situation to show 
uh, what the character is thinking, to show via action and dialogue uh, the character's thoughts. First, make sure the thinking is important. The character wondering whether to add mayonnaise to her sandwich isn't worth forcing the reader to listen to or think about it. If the thoughts aren't important, leave them out. In particular, avoid excessive introspection. And second, make it short. Make the interior monologue short. Readers are smart, and they will intuit much of what the character is thinking with just a clue or two, without the writer setting it out in long paragraphs of interior monologue. And I want to mention a subset of interior monologue, and I admit it's a pet peeve of mine, and that's dreams, reading about dreams in a novel. What's worse than interior monologue? Dreams are. Once in a while in a novel we're reading, a character will start dreaming and and the reader has to read along with the dream. Let me suggest that we not use dreams in our novels. I view them as weak for a couple of reasons. First, uh, interior monologue, a character thinking, is usually the least interesting aspect of a novel. Here again is Jack Bickham's uh, wonderful sentences, his definition of a scene. It's a segment of story action written moment by moment without summary presented on stage in the story now. It is not something that goes on inside a character's head. It is physical. It could be acted out on the theater stage. Uh, It could be put on the theater stage and acted out. Uh, I've mentioned before that's Uh, Those are the best uh, sentences about writing I've ever come across. Dreams aren't just interior monologue. They are uncontrolled interior monologue, meaning that not only does the reader have to listen to the character think, the reader has to listen to the character think a dream. Uh, uh, To be credible, a character's dream needs to be dreamlike, flighty and weird, If a character's thoughts are the dullest part of a novel, then the portrayal of a character's dreams, which aren't too connected to the story's reality in order to be credible as a dream, are even duller. Remember the last time someone said to you, I had the weirdest dream last night. I was standing by the edge of a cliff, and didn't you want to raise your eyes to the sky and and say, please spare me this? Uh, The dream might be interesting to your story's dreaming character, but a dream can't be made interesting because because it's a dream. The second reason dreams are a problem in a novel is that fiction asks the reader to suspend disbelief. The reader is sitting in a chair reading a novel, and the reader knows that the story isn't really happening, that it's only words on a page— constructed in the reader's head, a series of images, but the reader suspends belief because she wants to enjoy the story as it unfolds. But a dream asks the reader to suspend disbelief twice, once for the story and then again for the dream. The dream is fiction within fiction. Uh, This double suspension is often too much for readers. It brings their heads up Uh, from the page. 
most importantly, agents and editors flip through pages containing dreams. They simply aren't interested. Why do some writers like to insert dreams in their stories? They're easy. They aren't encumbered by cause and effect that is critical for fiction. Cause and effect require careful plotting. Dreams can just be plugged in without origin or consequence. So they're easy to tap out on our keyboards. Now, there are, of course, exceptions to this caution about dreams. If the character is Orwell in C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, a retelling of the story of Cupid and Psyche, and Oriole's dreams are messages from the gods, then maybe a dream sequence is fine. But this is an exception. I think we as writers should avoid writing in our novel and short story about our characters' dreams. Please allow me a moment of self-promotion. My new novel, Fagin and Miss Havisham is now available at Amazon. It's there for e-readers such as the Kindle, and soon it'll be in the print version and an audio version. The publisher is Creative Texts, an independent publisher and a good one. The novel is the story of famous Charles Dickens characters taking place when they were younger than in his novels. So we meet the pickpocket Fagin and the thumper Bill Sykes when, from Oliver Twist when they were younger, and the crazy Miss Havisham and the unstoppable lawyer Jaggers from Great Expectations when they were younger, and Police Inspector Bucket from Bleak House, the evil Murdstone from David Copperfield, and many others. I loved Charles Dickens' novels when I was young, and in Fagin and Miss Havisham, I mixed them all together earlier in their lives to see what happens. Please consider getting a copy of my new novel. You'll see the techniques we talk about in these episodes in action, at least the best I can do with them, and it'd be much appreciated. I'd like to return to the subject of showing versus telling. Uh, it's such an important technique for writers, and I like the topic. Uh, as I've mentioned, my favorite sentences regarding showing and telling to display to me at any time the difference is, his arm itched. That's telling. He scratched his arm is showing. We should show almost all the time as much as we can because it is much more involving for the reader than telling. But there's an exception. It's not necessary to show all the time. Here is one of the most famous sentences in literature, Dickens's description of Scrooge. But he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. <laughs> That's Charles Dickens. Isn't that fabulous? I wish I could put sentences together like this. It leaps off the page, and it's telling rather than showing. Sure, Dickens goes on in A Christmas Carol to show Scrooge's all of these things, but this sentence sets out Scrooge's personality in a few vivid words. There are times 
Not often, but there are times when telling is appropriate and useful. Well, when is that? First, when a lot of information needs to be delivered to the reader quickly. Jones had a thousand dollars in hundreds in his wallet, a K-bar knife strapped to his ankle, and a pair of brass knuckles that had doubled as his key fob in his pocket. These things could easily be shown in time, but perhaps the story's pace needs to be fast here, and so this sentence of telling is appropriate. And a second time when telling is fine is when the story's circumstances don't allow for showing. Here are the opening sentences of our novel. The sea had begun to build, and rollers were lifting and dropping the ship. The map was folded in his boot. He gripped the rail as the wind whipped spray into his face. It's important that the reader knows he has a map hidden in his boot. But the story has just opened, and there hasn't been time or a place to show that he has a map. Telling this fact about the map fits the story here. And the third time when uh, telling is, is fine is... Uh, backstory can often be told rather than shown. Uh, backstory, uh, those events that occurred before the story now, should almost always be short. Readers want forward momentum, not backward glances. And backstory is almost always more interesting to the writer than the reader. Telling allows brevity regarding backstory. Alderson had earned a mining engineering degree from the Colorado School of Mines and had lived for two years near Breckenridge working in an open pit mine until a hopper car jumped a rail and smashed into his knee, which required three surgeries and how his knee contained more st- and now his knee contained more steel than tissue and bone. Well, that's backstory, and it's all telling, and it's a lot of information delivered quickly, and it's just fine. All fiction, even the stories written by our best writers, contain some telling, usually because there's no way around it. Some telling is fine, but our default mode should be showing. What if our character isn't in a position in our story for us to reveal, that is to show, something important about her, then it may not be the best time to let the reader know about the fact. Save it for later. Here's an example of telling where a lot of facts are crammed into one paragraph. Jennifer's passion was rock climbing, and she trained on the vertical granite face of the lantern and often made dangerous mistakes as she climbed, such as going out in bad weather by herself. Her grandfather had founded Northwest Sawmills, Inc. Her father now ran the company, and Jennifer had been been raised in a mansion on Beachcomber Drive overlooking the San Juan Strait. This is a dull grocery list about Jennifer. How do we, as the author, show this information instead of telling? Here is showing. Jennifer gripped the belaying line as her feet scrambled against the granite wall. Her wet sweatshirt clung to her skin and rainwater dripped from her pants into her boots. Frost still rimmed some of the handholds. 
Her foot slipped, and she spun into the rock and cracked her chin against the wall. She blinked away the pain, then touched her nose where her eyeglasses should have been. They must have fallen off when she hit the wall. In her backpack, her cell phone rang. It'd be Eddie, her climbing partner, who she'd left at home today because Eddie had slept in. Jennifer hugged herself, shivering. This show version is much more vivid than the tell version. We learn that Jennifer has been doing something dangerous. She's up a cliff on a cold and rainy day by herself. She's lost her eyeglasses. What about some information about Jennifer's life at home, about her businessman father? It's not needed, not here anyway, If her father's success and the size of Jennifer's home are important, reveal that information where it has a connection to the action. Don't tell it now. Show it later with something like this. Carrying a dripping umbrella, Jennifer stepped into the hallway. A portrait of her grandfather hung above the marble table, and the old guy always seemed to stare at her. The second-floor maid came down the stairway and smiled. The reader has just been shown that Jennifer lives in a big house and that her family is wealthy. Uh, There's a tendency among us writers to set out all we know about a character or a setting right away, the first time we have a chance to do so. We've thought a lot about it and and developed uh, our character and the settings in our mind, and we want to get it out there on the page. But information can be rationed in a story, some here, some later. Facts can often be put before the reader later when the circumstance in the story allow those facts to be shown rather than told. We have arrived at the end of uh, our podcast. I'm glad you were along with me for it. I'll see you next time, and until then, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.